page 14 in your notes. And this is the parenting class, Parenting with Purpose. And if you don't care about parenting, then you're in the wrong class. Now, we have two other classes going on. One is out that back door and across the hall. And Dr. Combs is going through the book of 2 Corinthians. So if you'd prefer that, then uh, by all means, that's available to you. And if you're between the ages of 18 and 25, our Crossroads class is going on also. But you all look too old for that. So, And for the rest of you, then, it is uh, Parenting with Purpose, page 14. And today we will do lesson six. So that means we are halfway through the uh, ten lessons that comprise this series. Before we get into where we left off, let me remind you of some things that are coming up. This coming Saturday at five o'clock is the Enchanted Trails of Trick or Treat. Hey, I'm asking everybody to move to the, the center area. If you guys don't mind, thank you. Yeah, thanks for your cooperation. I appreciate it. With uh, multiple classes going on, that means fewer people in here. And when we're, the more spread out we are, the harder it, the harder it makes it. So thank you for that. This Saturday at 5 o'clock, Enchanted Trails of Trick or Treat for our uh, children. We've done this uh, two or three times uh, in a row now. It's always been a big hit with the uh, kids and the community as well. Uh, for that, we could use still some more candy to give out to the hundreds and hundreds. I, I, we had four or 500 kids, I think, go through last year. So that's a lot of candy. Uh, so we still need some. If you want to donate some, you can do that on Wednesday. The event is this Saturday. And then in November, we have four events that I've been telling you about, but I keep uh, hawking them because they're that important. Three weeks from today, the 6th at 4.30 is our annual servant seminar. Everybody who's a member of our church, and even if you're not, you're a regular tender and you're thinking you might become a member later, you'll want to come to this because we're going to be looking at just some things we want to ask the Lord to help us to accomplish over the next 10 years. Uh, so we're laying out our 10-year plan in three weeks. So mark that on your calendar, 4.30, November the 6th. That uh, following week is our annual celebration dinner. And that's our anniversary dinner. Uh, we started in the fall of 2001, and this is our 15th year then. And uh, every year we have in the fall an anniversary dinner. We call it the celebration dinner. It'll be at 5 o'clock on the 13th. Uh, that dinner is being catered, but you have to buy tickets for that, $5 each, $20 maximum per family, so that the caterers know how many people are coming. And you can buy those tickets at the Resource Center, which is out the back door and across the hall. And then on the 20th of November, that's our next baptism. If you have never been baptized, if you've never been immersed in water uh, to symbolize the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, then you need to be. We want to help you with that. You start the process with a one-page application that you can pick up at our information center desk that's out in the lobby. Last announcement I have is on the 12th of November, Saturday the 12th, 10 a.m., is the next newcomer's brunch at our house. And we've now in 15 years of our church, we've had several of these every year. So we've had a bunch of brunches, uh, over about 60 brunches now uh, at our house. And we always enjoy them. And if you've never been to one of the brunches, even if you've been at the church for a long time, then we would love to have you come. But we need to know how many are coming. So let the folks at the information center desk know. They'll put your name down and they'll also give you an invitation with a map to our house, our phone number, and a reminder of the date and time on it. All right, this is our class, uh, Parenting with a Purpose. And the purpose part 
of the title is important because we've structured this class in a way to try to look at what the purpose for a family is so that in turn we can look at our work as parents in light of what it is we're supposed to be accomplishing according to God in Scripture as as families. And so that's why the top of page 14 and the top of each of the lessons that you've had thus far says section one foundations for parenting. We're laying those foundations so that we have a good idea of what the purpose is for a family. What is a family? And then we can, as we have been, begin to break it down into the roles that constitute a a family. And we've seen that God intends for the family to be a learning community, a sociological community, and and a redemptive community. If you weren't here for some of those past lessons, those are all online at our website, and you can listen to those. Uh, along with the notes that you have. But we say then at the top of page 14, we began this course at the end. That is, we stress the importance of beginning with the end in mind. You see that that phrase, beginning with the end in mind, is in quotes. I think Stephen Covey, I know he used that in his uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I don't know if that's original with him, but I know he used that, so I'm quoting it because it's from somebody else. And the idea there, then, is starting with the end of what is a family supposed to look like, according to God, and then backing that off to look at the roles that we're assigned to play so that we can try to achieve that vision for a family. An illustration of doing that, beginning with the end in mind, is golf. If you you play golf, now I've been on the golf course a lot of times over the years, usually on average about twice a year. Uh, this year I went twice. Last year I'm not sure I went at all. Uh, this year my twice was in the exact same week. It happened that there were events going on, including our men's retreat, that had golf. So in one week I went twice, and those were my only two times of the entire year. I'm telling you all that because I'm no expert on golf then. But here's what people who are experts on golf tell me. That when you play golf, you want to start with the end in mind. That is... You want to have a survey of the whole course. If they're really serious about about it, they want to know what the course is, is like, how it's laid out, and they want to identify on that course, and it's 18 holes, what their, that golfer's, potential birdie holes are. You know, a birdie is you get the ball in the hole in one stroke less than what they say it's supposed to take. <clears throat> and <clears throat> the lower your score, the fewer strokes it takes for you to do that on 18 holes, that's the objective in golf. So they identify the, you know, four or five or six holes that they think are their real birdie holes. And on those birdie holes then, they uh, identify each of the shots. So it's not just looking at the whole course, it's now looking at this particular hole and how uh, it's laid out. And if I'm going to get the ball in the cup on that hole in uh, one under par, then I'm going to have to hit my, I'm going to have to have my next to last shot in a position to get it there, which means i got to have the shot before that in a certain position, which means the very first shot has to go somewhere, and they just back off from there. So those that are really serious about it do that. Uh, Unfortunately, we have some people in our church who are really serious about it. (laughs) I found this out because when we went to the men's retreat golf outing, which was on Friday, a week ago Friday, uh, I got there on time. I got there a little bit early, but there were a there were several guys who were already there. And it turned out that guys from our church were already there because they had come up the night before 
to spend the night and then play 18 before we actually played our 18. That's how serious these guys are. So if you're one of those guys or if you were there, I remember what I said. You get a life. All right. <laughs> no, these guys are these guys are really good and I'm jealous. And uh, and I was hacking around all that time. But that's the way guys are really good. Do it. They survey the course and then they back off uh, uh, from each shot to know where they should begin and place each one. So that's what we're trying to do here. Begin with the end in mind. Top of page 14 again, that second line, having applied this to our overall family structure, we now seek to apply it specifically to the rearing of children. This lesson is going to seek to answer the following questions. What is it we're trying to accomplish with our children? What is the end of the process? Is there an end of the process? Having determined the end, we'll begin to look at the means for achieving it. All right. So how long does the game last? To use a sports metaphor then, a game metaphor, how long does the game of parenting last? How long is it supposed to go on? Is there an end? We often think of the end of a process in terms of an assigned period of time. When time runs out, it's over. So that's the way a lot of games are. You know, So you've got quarters or periods, and you've got a clock, and the buzzer goes off, and the game is, game is over. But with parenting, we must think of the end not as a particular point in time, but as the accomplishment of our objectives. So when does the parenting game, when does the parenting process end? Well, that depends on what the objectives are for it and when you have achieved those. That's not going to be a particular point in time. As we'll see, it's not even going to be a particular age but rather it's going to be different for each each child. Now all things being equal, children our children will leave the home at some point. Now I say all things being equal. Uh, most parenting relationships are going to uh, result in the children getting married and leaving the home. Or even if they don't get married, they will at some point leave the home. There are exceptions to that. And there are legitimate exceptions to that. Obviously, if a child has physical or emotional needs, uh, then they're going to remain in the home a longer period of time, maybe for the entirety of their, their adult life. That's why I say all things being equal. Uh, but notice I say at the top of page 14, here's the title of this lesson, lesson six. Marriage is permanent. Parenting is temporary. So you need to think about that. All things being equal. The end game with parenting, when the objectives are met, is that the children are going to leave. At some point, the children, all things being equal, will leave. Now, that being the case, as you are parenting these children, you're still going to need to cultivate your marriage. Because when the children leave, you're still stuck with each other. And what happens with some marriages, and people are shocked when this happens, Man, they seem so happy. They had the kids. They're raising the kids. The kids leave. And then they realize we haven't been cultivating our relationship for all these years. We really don't like each other. We I, Did we like each other before we had the kids? Can't quite remember, but I know I don't like you now. And people at that age, empty nesters who split up, who get divorced, and you never would have thought it, but they're not cultivating the marriage while they have the children and understanding that part of the end game is 
that marriage is going to continue after the children leave. And all things being equal, the children indeed are, are going to leave. So with that, parents need to train their children to do that. I say on page 14. We're to train our children to leave. Now you notice that word is in quotation marks. And that's because it's a quote from Genesis 2.24, which I have for you there. For this reason, a man and a woman, because that man is going to find a woman. So a man and a woman will leave his, her father and mother. So that's a quote from the Bible. And therefore, because it's God's intention, all things being equal for children to leave and to to marry, as most will, though not all will, because that's his intention, then we need to have that in mind as we rear these children. We're to train them to leave. And that means that we we are to train them to become independent of us. So now, as you're parenting your child, you need to be thinking about that. This child's going to leave. That's a good thing. God intends that, all things being equal, but I've got to prepare them for that leaving. And that means teaching them to become independent. We'll see some of practically what that means in a, in a bit. So children are to become independent of their parents. And this word leave, I say in the middle of page 14, the Hebrew word that's translated leave literally means to forsake. So you could read that verse, Genesis 2.24, for this reason a man will forsake his father and mother. Sounds really harsh. Uh, but by way of explanation, you see here from the word biblical commentary, that word is used in other passages and other contexts. Israel is bidden not to forsake or to not leave the poor and the Levite uh, or the covenant. On the other hand, God promises not to, to leave Israel. These examples show that forsaking father and mother is to be understood in a relative sense, not an absolute sense. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Or our Lord's remarks about hating father and mother, wife and, and children. These are, these are relative and not, and not absolute. So here's the conclusion. On marriage, a man's priorities change. So when our children get married, as most of them will, when that happens, their priorities change. Beforehand, his first obligations are to his parents. Afterwards, they are to the spouse. And that's going to be then a radical reordering of that child's priorities when they get married. And we got to be thinking about that when they are younger, that this child is going to grow up, Lord willing, and all things being equal, to be independent so that they can do that, so that they can leave and they can, uh, and they can reorganize their priorities with us as parents still involved in their lives, but involved in different ways. First obligation is now going to be to his or her his or her spouse. So we need to train our children to leave. That means train them to become independent of us. And secondly, they are to become marriageable. And the reason I use that word marriageable is this. Not all of our children will get married. So whether they get married or not, They should be able to be married. They should be marriageable. We should be intentionally training them so that a young, a young, a girl and a boy are being trained to be a husband or a wife. If that's what God has for them, as he will have for most of our children. And so they need to be marriageable, whether or not marriage is what God has 
for them in particular or not. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and then here's the rest of the verse, and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. So here's some of what goes into that suggestion that we train our children to be marriageable. One, I say there, A, while singleness is possible and it is legitimate, marriage is the norm. So you should be thinking marriage for your kids. And then whether that happens in the future or not, that's in the Lord's hands, but you should be thinking and praying marriage for your kids and training them accordingly because that's the norm. And in order for that to happen, for the kids to be marriageable, they've got to be sociable. You see that there? We've got to train our children to be sociable. Your kid's not marriageable if they're not sociable. So be thinking about that. Be thinking about that at an early age. We have been thinking about it for a long time. And it has practical application with just simple but important stuff. When you go to a restaurant with your child, at the time they are able to talk, then they should order their food. And teach them to look in the eye of the waitress and to talk and converse with them. When they are at church, they should be taught to look at people in the eye and speak to them. They should be taught to do that with adults so that they're comfortable hanging around with people that are presumably more mature. So that they're not, you're training them to not just be kids all the time, to be immature all the time. Because what are we trying to do? We're trying to have them be marriageable and so they've got to be able to do that. Now, you may, I don't know what you do with your, your kids, but I've seen this with parents with their children. They are spokespersons for their children all the time. And they don't teach the children to engage socially. They don't uh, force the children to, to speak, for, speak for themselves. And so I encourage you in all those kinds of settings, restaurant settings, church settings, all of that, you know, the child wants to hide behind you. It, and, and if they have a speech impediment or they have some kind of neurological issue, obviously there are ex- exceptions to all of these things. But in the normal case, what's happening is it's just harder to talk than it is to just let you talk. And because it's harder, as long as you're willing to do it, they're willing to let you do it. But as long as you do it, you're not teaching them to be sociable. And to look someone in the eye and to speak with them and to, to learn how to interact. In addition to that, if our children are going to be marriageable, they're going to have to be taught, raised to be sociable. And they're going to have to be raised to understand sex and gender roles. They're going to get married. They're now going to have a, a partner for life. Part of that is being one flesh. Part of that is all things being equal, having children yourself. Uh, Sex is for procreation and for pleasure, according to the Bible, both of those. So a married couple is to engage in sexual relationships. But in order for that to happen in a God-honoring way, we have to teach our children about those things. Now, the best way for that to happen is for those children to have a model in front of them of a husband and wife who have a healthy relationship with each other. 
The best thing that you can possibly do for your children is to model before them a mother and a father who love each other. And if they don't see a mother and a father who love each other, it's going to be very difficult for them to establish a marriage relationship of their own that looks like what the Bible says. And as it relates to healthy physical contact with members of the members of the opposite sex, they should see you as mom and dad being comfortable hugging one another and being playful around one another and kissing each other on the cheek, on the lips quickly. You understand what I'm saying, okay? Not, but you're comfortable around each other and you're comfortable physically around each other and you like being with each other. And they learn that and they know and they know that. So our children have to be understand, raised to understand that you've got to talk to them about sex. If they don't learn about sex at home, they'll learn about it in a locker room. They'll learn about it from Donald Trump. They'll learn about it from somewhere else. So the best place for them to learn about that is from you. Now, if you need help with that, we have uh, books on that in the Bibli recommended reading section. And one of the sections is on dating and, and sex. And there are three books listed there. So I encourage you to take a look at those. The other thing you could do as your children get to be teenagers is have them read the books that I recommended to you a couple of weeks ago, the one for wives and the one for husbands, uh, The Excellent Wife and The Complete Husband. And those books are in the recommended reading section as well. And so for a girl, you have her read The Excellent Wife. So she gets an idea of what the Bible says about this. Before she's got any suitor coming along, she knows what that's about. Same thing for the husband. Have a young man take part of his summer, one year during high school, to read the complete uh, the complete husband book that we recommend. Now, I meant to say this, and I forgot to. I'm sorry, but back up under raising them to be sociable and teaching them to talk. You know, so do that in restaurants, do that at church, other kinds of settings. Let them talk. You go into school with them about an issue, they talk. You can be there for moral support. You can be there to back them up, but they do the talking. Me and my girls have been doing this for years. I go in with them, and then if the person's giving them a hard time, I'll jump in and I give the person a hard time. But, but they do the talking. They represent themselves. But you're not going to be able to do any of this. Church, restaurant, school, anything. You're not going to be able to do any of this. If your kid has his or her nose buried in an electronic device all the time. You, you, you've, got, you've got to get your kid's nose out of their phone, their iPad, their computer. Our kids are not learning to talk because they don't interact with human beings. They interact with screens. Now, I have an iPhone, I have an iPad, and I have a laptop. And I do lots of emailing, and I get texts and all that, like most of you do. And these are convenient. They're, they're helpful, as long as they're used properly. When your child is in the presence of other people, it is rude to those other people for them to be on their phone, just like it's rude for you to be doing that. And you need to teach them that now. We're going to give you a phone. If you give them a phone... And by the way, wait as long as you can to give them a phone, okay? 
But phones can be handy, you know, just a prepay phone or something like that for emergency purposes. I'm giving you this for emergency purposes, but you are not going to be texting everybody in the school all the time and all of that. And when you're with us as your family, when you're with other people, you are not going to be doing that. And the earlier you establish that, the better they'll understand it. The longer you wait, the harder it will be. And it will be very difficult then for those kids to begin looking people in the eye, talking to them, and learning to be sociable. Now, why don't we do this? Top of page 15. Reasons for delay of game. I mean, if that's the end game, is that our kids are going to leave, all things being equal. They need, therefore, to be taught to be marriageable. That means they need to be taught to be uh, independent as well. And all that goes with that, if that's all true, and it seems to me that whole page makes sense, uh, so assuming it makes sense to you, then why don't we do it? Reasons for delaying this or not doing it at all. One is a failure to define our objectives in parenting and marriage. We don't think about the things I'm encouraging you to think about. We're not thinking about what is the end game here? What is this child's profile supposed to look like when they become an adult? If you don't think about that, then you're just going to drift through life without intentionally raising these children to meet those objectives. So that's one reason it doesn't happen. We just don't think about the objectives. But here's another one. We create in our parenting an inordinate codependency inordinate. Now, that implies that there's an ordinate, that there's a proper way for our children to be dependent on us. When they're small, they're obviously dependent on us for lots of stuff. But what can happen if you're not very careful is that you are as much or more dependent on them than they are on you, especially for them to meet some kind of hidden emotional need for you. And when that happens, then that can cause you not to move the kids toward independence because you don't want them to be independent. You have this emotional neediness for them. Now, as parents here, and as a parent of two girls who are just recently into adulthood, I can tell you, that my wife, neither my wife nor I are thrilled about the fact that these girls are adults in one sense. We're not thrilled about it. Um, we love them dearly, just love them dearly. And God has given us a great time together. It has been a great 21 years with Lainey so far and a great 18 years with Annie so far. And so you can easily get nostalgic and emotional. I get emotional just talking about it right now. Because God has been so good to us to have this relationship, we don't want to see that change in one sense. On the other hand, we do want to see it change for Christ's sake. Because this is the means that he has chosen for them now to perpetuate Christ-likeness in the next generation. They're going to become marriageable and independent, and they're going to do this now. And we want that. So I'm telling you that to just say, look, I get it that it's not easy. And I get it that it is very easy to slip into an emotional then dependency upon our children. The closer we are, the the better time we have with us, the easier it's going to be to fall into that. But you're going to have to fight that urge for their sake and for Christ's sake. 
so that you don't have this inordinate codependency that shows up in things like I have here. Parents living for their children. So you're not raising these children first and foremost for Jesus. You've defined in your mind, even if you haven't explicitly done this, implicitly this is the way you're, you're rolling, that my job is to do what my kids want and give them as much as I possibly can of what they want, living, parenting for them. Now, this is where this, I see this become particularly acute. When a child has had something go on in his or her life that has given them uh, something out of the ordinary, something has happened in the child's life. It wasn't the child's fault. They've been victimized somehow. And the parent feels the need to compensate for that. And they end up living for their children because they're trying to compensate for this other thing. I'll give you an example. Uh, my dear mother, now with the Lord, she raised four boys. I'm the third of four. My oldest brothers, all three of my brothers, uh, don't know Jesus. My younger brother, some of you may remember, made a profession a few years ago. But that appears not to have been a genuine conversion. And so uh, all three of my brothers don't know the Lord. I have two older, one younger. Uh, my oldest brother is nine years older than me. The second oldest is seven years older. So they are young adults when I'm like 11 and 12. And I see what's going on with them. And as an 11, 12-year-old, I can't quite get my mind around it, but something's not right here. They're dependent upon my mom, and my mom is doing everything for them. She's living for them. And she is being taken to the cleaners. My mom didn't have any money to begin with, but what little money she had was being taken. And it was being used on young men, able-bodied men. Why is this happening? My father died when I was 11. And my mom sensed that loss for us boys. And she was trying to compensate for that loss. That was part of it. Another piece of it with my older brothers was that I'm the only one of the four of us that was actually born in southeast Michigan. I've been here almost my whole life. I was born in Wyandotte in 1962. I'm 54. And then when I was an infant toddler, I'm told we moved to Tennessee. (laughs) And my younger brother was born there in 1964. But then shortly thereafter, we came back here. So for all the years I can remember, in kindergarten all the way up, I've lived here. But my two older brothers were born in Kentucky. And they were brought as young boys here. And that was not a good experience for them for the first several years. Hillbillies coming from eastern Kentucky up here. And... My mom always had this sense that we and she were being looked at askance by these northerners. They think they're better than we are. 
And she saw that in particularly my older brothers. So they got moved here through no fault of their own. And they now have to deal with these snooty northerners. And then their father dies. And in between all of that, they're at this school in e-course that is going through race riots when they're in high school, literally riots. Well, that's not their fault either. So they went through a bunch of stuff, and here's my dear, tender-hearted mother. And she is doing everything she can to try to make it up to them, to compensate, to live for them. And in so doing, she's actually making it worse, but she doesn't know that. It took me years as a young adult to finally be able to realize it myself and to communicate it to my mother and for her to take some, make some changes in the way she dealt with, with my brothers. So parents sometimes live for their children. Often that is compensating for what they perceive to be some loss that's going on. The kids got moved into a new school. The kids at school don't like them. And I'm not saying these are small issues. They're, they're big issues. But the temptation for you when something like that happens is now for you to live for your children and to try to compensate for that issue. Or parents living through their children. Living through their children is, I'm trying to raise my kid to be what I wanted to be. Either what I wanted to be or what it actually was and I thought was the coolest thing. And so now it's going to be cool for you too. So dad, if you're a sports guy and you love sports and you played sports, it's going to be a temptation for you. If you get a boy, that boy is going to do everything that you did. But he's going to do it better. And he's going to actually make it. We all know you could have made it. If you didn't have the stupid coaches who you know, had favorites. And if you hadn't broken your leg in 10th grade. You know, and all that. If you hadn't had these mishaps, you would have made it. The world is filled with guys who all believe they could have made it if they had just gotten a couple of breaks. But my kid's going to make it. And you're going to then, you're going to live vicariously through your, through your child. Or, you just think of all kinds of things. That's a sports thing. Ladies, you know, you had this dream about the way it was going to be romantically and your knight in shining armor was going to come along and you were going to get married and live happily ever after and then you got who you got, okay? My wife will tell you she had that. Didn't last long. And, and how it was she ever thought I fit the bill for any of this. But really, we've had serious conversations about that. That Kim had a very idealistic view of what a husband was going to accomplish for her. Well, there's no way you can wind up any anything but disappointed when you set that up. But if you don't let that go, then you are going to live through your now daughter and you're going to make sure that she gets what you didn't get. You could make a very long list of those kinds of things, but you get the idea. Inordinate codependency coming from the parents being dependent upon on the child, living for them or living through them. So what do we do then? In order to get the kids from here to there, in order to get them from here to marriageable, independent, sociable, so that the objectives are accomplished in the most efficient way possible for the Lord's sake. Well, that's the game plan on page 15. And I encourage you to turn to, actually now, page 16. Because you'll notice on page 16, 
that the game plan is uh, continued there, but it is expanded. So everybody got page 16? Lesson number 7. We will start this and then we will finish it next next week. In this lesson, we want to look at what it, in some depth, at what it means and does not mean to do what Ephesians 6.4 says. Bring them up, our children, in the training and instruction of the Lord. So you see that. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. You see the note, explanatory note there? It's addressed to fathers, but it assumes the role of mothers. J. Adams says this. When Paul, who wrote that, speaks to the fathers, he's speaking to the mothers also. The reason he addresses the fathers is that what the mothers do, the fathers are responsible for. In addressing the father, he's addressing the one in whom God has vested authority for discipline. The father is to be the head of the home. The father is to be the one who ultimately must answer to God for what happens in the home. So that's why in your New Testament, there's not an Old Testament, it's a New Testament passage. Fathers, bring up your children in the training and instruction of the Lord. Do not exasperate them. So what does this mean? Well, it means that we have to do as that uh, verb tells us, bring them up, middle of page 16. And the way that phrase that's translated in English, bring them up, is written in Greek, it gives you these four things that I have on page 16. That we must raise our children. That is, that it's something that has to be, in, it's a command. That's got to be intentionally done. The word translated, bring them up, means literally to nourish and provide with tender care. It's used in chapter 5 of Ephesians of the care that we are to give our bodies. So we are to raise our children. Bring them up. Okay, how does that help me? Well, here's how. Uh, this means that when you come to the parenting task, you assume that you know where they are and where they need to go. That's how you raise them. I raise them to go from here to there. That means I've got to come to these children and to the task of parenting them Hear this now with a confidence about what it is they're to be moved toward. They're to be raised to. Not an arrogance, but a confidence. Now, how can I have this confidence, kid, to my child, that I know where you're supposed to wind up? How am I going to get this confidence? It's only if what I'm doing is in keeping with what God has said in Scripture. And as long as I am doing in this child's life what God has instructed me to do in Scripture, now I can have this confidence to say, you're going to move from here to there. Now, I'm belaboring that a little bit for this reason. I see a lot of parents who have no confidence in where these kids are supposed to go. It stands to reason to me that they would have no confidence if they don't have the Bible. If they don't have the light of God's word, well, then you're just making it up. Or you're just going to do what your parents did with you. And that may be good or bad, often bad. Particularly if they didn't use the Bible as the lamp and light for them. So we don't actively raise them 
with a confidence that says, this is the, the direction you need to go and exude that confidence to our children. We exude this lack of confidence that is deferential, deferring to our children too often so that the children are not are not being raised by you. They are, in effect, raising them, themselves and you're assisting them in the process. You hear that? You're assisting them in the process of raising themselves. So we've got to bring them up. We've got to raise them. Secondly, parents must actively raise their children. The verb translated to bring them up is in what's called the active voice in Greek. In, in, in Greek. This means that the subject of the verb, which is fathers and mothers, are to take initiative in the upbringing of their children. So it's not something that's passive. It's not something that will just happen. As a matter of fact, if you believe what the Bible says about humanity, including our children, that if children are not actively raised to be righteous and godly, they will be by default unrighteous and ungodly. Did you know that? Because, see, that's the natural bent of all humanity. What you're being charged to do as a parent is to actually move a child in a direction that's unnatural for him or her. If they go in their natural direction, where will they go? The Bible teaches Proverbs, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. But we've been raised now for decades on Dr. Spock and his baby book and all of these people who don't assume a biblical view of humanity that says that we come into this world with a sinful bent to go our own way and do our own thing. And we have bought into false assumptions about humanity, either that these children come in as a blank slate that's got to be filled, Or that they come in as positively good. All children are born with a good nature. And neither of those is true. The blank slate or the good nature. Neither of those is true. Biblically. Your kid is born with a sin nature. And so are mine. And here's why. Here's why our girls were born with a sin nature. They take after their mother. Well, there's truth to that, right? But they actually take after both of us. They get it from their old man and their old lady. Who got it from their old man and their old lady who go all the way back to Adam and Eve. Now, do you? I'm asking you, do you believe that then? Do you believe that that little bundle of joy is also a little bundle of sinfulness? And therefore, that child is going to have to be actively raised. If you are passive in it, then the child will by default go in the wrong direction. Thirdly, We must raise our children. We're told to bring them up to raise them. It's got to be active, not passive. And it is not something that is uh, negotiable. It must be done because it's written in what's called in Greek the imperative mood. It's an imperative. Not optional, but a command to be obeyed. And one for which, I'll just make you feel a little more guilty here. You know, which, one for which the Lord will hold us accountable. That we are answerable to the Lord for what we do with these children that he has commanded us to raise. And then lastly there, parents must continually raise their children. That command, bring them up, is written in the present tense, which means it's an ongoing activity. Parenting cannot be a part-time job. 
And further, it's an ongoing activity because the children keep going. And they keep moving into different phases. So when I have established the foundation when they're three, which in a couple of weeks we will look at, uh, I call um, I call that phase the control phase. Three major phases of parenting. In a couple of weeks we'll start looking at that, so be here. But that's the control. You establish that. You establish who's the authority in the home. The earlier you do that, the better. And that sets you up for the next phase and then the, and then the next phase. But if I just set up the first phase early on, the kids are gonna, they grow and they grow into other things and they grow into other challenges. So I've gotta be there for that too. So I'm not there for just one phase of their life. I'm not there for just one part of a particular phase. At every phase and at all times, we're actively engaged in bringing them up in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. So that's what we're to do. That's what it means to bring them up. Now, if you look on page 17, that verse in Ephesians 6, 4 said, bring them up in the nurture and instruction of the Lord, training and instruction of the Lord. But just before that, it says, fathers do not exasperate your children. So we want to see what it means and does not mean Practically speaking, to exasperate your children. we got to quit in 60 seconds. But for now, uh, that passage is used in Colossians chapter 3. And it says, fathers, instead of do not exasperate, it says, uh, fathers, do not embitter your children. Embitter them. There are ways that you can embitter your children. And that phrase, exasperate or embitter, literally means this, to take the wind out of their sails. Depending on how we go about this raising them, bringing them up process, we can take the wind out of that kid's sails and harm them for a long period of time. So it's important that we see together next week what this means and what it doesn't mean to avoid exasperating our children. Okay, we'll do that next week. Lord willing, let's pray together. Father, you're good to us. You're a good father. And because you are our father and you are good, you are the model for what we fathers are to be. What we're to be like in our homes and to our to our children. And Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for her. And he serves as the model for what husbands are to be like. And so, Lord, thank you for loving us enough to show us that example, to show us yourself, to give us instruction in your word about the roles that you have assigned us to play. Lord, these are, these are heavy responsibilities and they are beyond us. I can't do this apart from you. No one here can do this apart from you. No man, no woman can play the role that you've given apart from your aid. But Lord, you have not left us alone. You have given us your spirit. You have given us your word. You have given us your people. And so we move forward with confidence because a good father and a good God has assigned this to us and he has not left us without instruction. Thank you for the instructions of your word about bringing up our children and what instruction and discipline means in the lives of our children and 
avoiding exasperating them, taking the wind out of their sails. Lord, I just thank you for that, for giving that to us. And I thank you for these brothers and sisters, for these people that are here and who want to know what those instructions are and how to implement those in the lives of their children. I pray, Lord, that you will grant us gospel success as we seek to do that when we're done with this series, but but even this week as we start to think about how what we've talked about today applies in our families. May it make a difference in our joy in the journey as we serve you in these important roles, but especially in the lives of our children. May it make a profound difference. We ask you, Lord, to go with us this week. We ask you to grant us safety, and we ask you to bring us back next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.